Good morning, everybody. Scripture reading today is Matthew 21, 1 through 17. It's on page 981 of the Black Pew Bible. That's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. We've got a busy week ahead. We're going to have service opportunities for us, helping the criers and others. So we'll be letting you know. Um, I know communication sometimes is difficult. Morgan is able to seem like to get out um, text, so we'll be using his phone or computer to get those out. But come and be a part of those as you can. Uh, definitely Wednesday we'll have service, prayer time for the adults and students, and then Tenebrae on Friday. Easter will be a, a fun day, but a lot to do in between. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 17 it is Palm Sunday. It's a special day in the life of the church, special week, Passion Week, also week of suffering or called Holy Week, but it's an important time um, because the events that took place during the last seven days of Jesus' earthly life was important. They were important to the Lord. and We know that his ministry spanned three years, and we have four gospel writers and they spend proportionally larger amounts of time writing about those seven days than they do the other two, almost three years. In fact, Matthew, about 30% of his gospel covers the last seven days of Jesus' life. Mark, 38% of his gospel. Luke, 25%. And John, 48% of his gospel records the events 
during these last seven days. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, we've been learning some of these things in our Wednesday night uh, study with the adults. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21-22. So we know not only the events of this week are important to the gospel writers, but it's important to the Lord. And so it should be important to us, His church. And so what I want to challenge you to do, I, I told the men this in men's breakfast this morning, I want to challenge you, especially you men, leaders of your household, to make this week important in your home. And well, how can I do that? Well, do th- one way you can do that is just having devotions every night this week. Do devotions. And, and you think, well, I'm not really uh, in a custom habit of doing that, not really sure how to do that. Well, what you can do is there's in your insert in the, in the worship guide, there's a, a list of readings, chronological readings from the last seven days of Jesus' life in the Gospels. You can read those. There's a devotional. There's a link there in the, in the insert. There's a, a, a devotional there that you can read with your family, and you'll have to determine if those things are age-appropriate or not for your children. But one of the, the easiest things to do is just gather before you go to bed and just have a time of thanksgiving. Hey, what are you thankful for today? What did the Lord do for you today? And what you're doing is you're teaching your children that all good and perfect things come from the Lord. And you say, well, I'm, I'm, I don't have children. Well, do it with your spouse. Well, I don't have a spouse. Well, do it with your roommate. Something you can do with your family, whoever you're, you live with. Something you could do this week. So I want to really challenge you, and we'll talk about it some, again, Wednesday night and again next week, to do that. Maybe it'll be something that catches on. You know, of course, that's my motive, right? Part of my desires for us as families to be able to do that. But just lie in bed before you go to sleep. You and your spouse just read this or just have a time of prayer where you're just thankful for what the Lord has done for you that day. And if you don't, if you don't uh, know what you ought to be thankful for, drive up 54, heading to Brownsville, and you'll be thankful. You won't have, much, you won't have a, a problem coming up with things you're thankful for because there's a lot of people that are suffering and struggling even now. So I want to encourage you to do that. So today we're going to study Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, that Palm Sunday event, and the cleansing of the temple. And Matthew, what he's doing, he's a, a, a Jewish disciple of Jesus. He was a tax collector. He was called by Jesus to, to forsake his, his sinful life and to follow Jesus, and he did that. We know that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pushing Jesus in front of the stage. What he's trying to do is to help his Jewish audience of the day understand that Jesus was the Messiah King. He was a long-awaited Messiah. And how does he do that? Well, he does it in several ways. Firstly, the genealogy. The beginning of Matthew shows that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne. He shares about his birth narrative, the fulfillment of the prophecies. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He came out of Egypt. He moved to Nazareth. He had a forerunner, which was John the Baptist, right? In chapter 3, at his baptism, what does the Father say? God the Father affirms his pleasure in his Son. In chapter 4, he, he went into the, the desert and he was tempted and he was faithful. In chapter 5 through 7, we see him teaching with authority on the Sermon on the Mount. He taught like no one they had ever heard before. Chapters 8 through 9, he heals many. He calms a storm. He even, he even had authority to forgive sin. In chapter 10, we see Jesus using his authority to send out the 12 to do many miracles, but also to prepare them for the persecution that was coming. In chapter 11, we see Jesus reassuring John the Baptist that he indeed was the long-awaited Messiah. 
In chapter 12, Jesus proves he is Lord of the Sabbath by healing a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath in the temple. Chapters 13, 12 and 13, there's a transition. We see the opposition growing. The parables that Jesus taught teach the gospel. It will be received by some and opposed by others. Chapters 14 through 19, we see Jesus beginning to pull away and spend more time with his disciples, preparing them for his departure, teaching them privately. And we see their, their inability to understand his teaching. Right, And then now we're in chapter 20, 21. We see Jesus approaching Jerusalem, and now he's entering Jerusalem as the king of Israel. He's riding in on a donkey as Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. He demonstrates his authority by cleansing the temple and he healed the blind and the lame in view of all there in the temple. The most populated place on the city during the Passover celebration. When I ask if he heard the children calling him the son of David, he quotes Psalm 8 verse 2 signaling that again Jesus is the son of God, the long-awaited Messiah King. So we're going to look real quickly at four evidences that Jesus is the Messiah King. First evidence, verses 1 through 6, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus has been headed towards Jerusalem for some time, and he approaches the city. He tells two of his disciples to go fetch a colt of a donkey. The colt and the mother was brought to Jesus, and Jesus' cloaks were put on the colt, and Jesus sat on the, clo- on the, uh, the cloak on the, the colt, and it rode into the city to the accolades of many who were celebrating the Passover. And he quotes verse 5, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Let's read that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a colt, a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's this prophecy that the king's going to come. The Messiah's going to come, and he's going to come into Jerusalem riding on a, the, the, a colt of a donkey. And then what's he going to bring? He's going to bring peace. And so that's what Jesus is doing. The other gospel writers tell us this, this colt had never been ridden now. How does that usually go? I don't know if y'all know much about donkeys or colts or anything like that. We've had them. We have them now. We've, we've had them in the past. And growing up, we had a, um, I had a horse named Thunder. And, um, but my dad had a, had a small mule named Sally Bell. And you think, Sally Bell, that's kind of a funny name. Well, it was kind of a funny donkey. And the, and the thing about it is, Sally Bell was, ro- was ridden much. Our, all the boys in my neighborhood, they were all two, three, four, five years older than me. But we would all ride those, that horse and that donkey. We'd ride it all the time. And so that, that donkey was, or that mule, that small mule was much ridden. But what would happen when you would get on, it wouldn't like just sit there and let you get on it. No, it had a game it would play. So when you'd go to get on it, it would kind of sidestep. And when you did finally throw your leg over it, what he's going to do is going to give you three, four good kicks, right, to see if you knew how to ride or not. Because she didn't want anybody that didn't know how to ride to ride there. So she'd give three or four good kicks, and, and you could ride on, and she would be okay. But it's interesting to hear this story, read this story, and to think about this colt that's never been ridden and Jesus getting up on that colt and riding in, that's a sign that he's a king, right? He's the Messiah. Maybe that's why the, the mother of the colt was brought along. I don't know. But he rides into the accolades of many, many people. And think about him riding on the colt of a donkey. Now, 
culturally, we have to understand the culture. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the kings rode on mules, right? It was a sign of authority. It was a sign of, of their, they had strong character. They ruled over people. But Solomon was the, the last one we see in the Old Testament doing that. In fact, at this time, I think it's more like modern-day perceptions. When I think of somebody riding a donkey or a mule, I think of Festus. And there's a few people who knows what Festus is. The kids are sitting there. They don't know. I mean, you got to get TV land. you got to get your kids read, watching some good TV shows. Gunsmoke, you ever seen it? You ever seen that? Jacob, you ever seen Gunsmoke? Jacob, you ever seen Gunsmoke? Okay, I'm making sure. Because if not, I was going to get on to your daddy. Because that's a show that boys need to watch. But on, on the show, there's a, there's a deputy, and his name is Festus. And, and what they're, the writers of the TV show, what they're trying to do, they're trying to portray what? An incapable, kind of accident-prone deputy, right? They have them ride this mule or a donkey, and it's seen, they're, they're seen as like stubborn, right? Uh, Comical-type animals. Well, it's interesting. Jesus rides in on the colt of a donkey into the city. It's been said about this event. Jesus did not march proudly into the city of Jerusalem as a strutting military figure, nor did he ride on a spirited stallion. He rode on a donkey, symbolic of his humble peacemaking assignment. And as we read the, the prophecy in Zechariah, He's going to ride in on a colt of a donkey. And then what's the next passage? It talks about peace. It talks about bringing peace. And peace. Taking away the bow. And so Jesus comes in and he's humble. He's saying, I'm the king, but I am gentle and I am lowly and hard and I come to bring peace. This was a very deliberate act on behalf of Jesus it was to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah. This is not a mistake. This is not a coincidence. He's riding in on the colt, the foal of a donkey, and he's saying, I am God's king coming to God's people. Evidence number one. Evidence number two that Jesus is the Messiah king is his, how he responds to the accolades. Look at verse 7 through 11. They put him on the donkey and... and the crowds spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And what's that all about? Well, we see that in the Old Testament. It's not an isolated event here. That only happened here. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. Jehu is being coronated. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. We see that here putting their cloaks on the ground in front of the king. Doesn't stir up dust, right? Well, that's what they did with Jesus. They took their cloaks and they put them on the road and he rode that, that donkey across their cloaks. And then those that didn't have cloaks, they cut branches and put on the road. That's why we, we call it Palm Sunday, right? Way in the palm branches and they put some of those palm branches on the, on the road and he rode over that. Notice what they're shouting as they, he's riding over those cloaks and those branches on the road. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means salvation. We sang that song this morning, right, to open our worship. Hosanna means salvation. What are they saying here? They're saying what? 
Here is the king. Here is the king. The religious leaders, notice their, um, their reaction. They're upset, aren't they? Hosanna to the son of David. The king is here. The king is here. That's what they're saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord. If you're coming in the name of the Lord, what are you doing? It means you're, in some sense, you're representing here and you're coming to do what? Set forward his purposes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the king. The king is coming. The king is coming. Down in verse 15, the children are saying the same thing. Jesus is doing, uh, performing miracles there in the temple. After he cleanses the temple, he's doing miracles, healing the, the lime and the blame. We'll come back to that in just a second. The lime, the, uh, the, the, the blind and the lame, he's healing them, and they're crying out. What are they crying out? The same thing. Hosanna to the son of David. It tears up the religious leaders. They are upset. They are indignant. That means they are ticked off, right? They understand what they were implying with these praises. And they couldn't believe that Jesus let this go on. And they approached Jesus about it. Are you not going to stop them? And Jesus had been doing that, hadn't he, for the last three years. Typically, he performs a miracle. He casts out a demon. Does he say, oh, go and tell everybody what's happened? He does on occasion. It's typically in Gentile areas. But when he was around the Jews, what does he do? Shh, don't tell anybody. In fact, we have proof of that, don't we, in the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. Peter had just spoken on behalf of all the disciples as a representative. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says what? You remember in Matthew 16, he says, you're the Messiah. The son of the living God. In Matthew 16, verse 20, Jesus responds to them. He strictly tells them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Strictly. That means you better not tell anybody, right? The next chapter, Matthew 17, he's transfigured on the mountain. Peter, James, and John is there to see him. And as they're coming down the mountain, what does Jesus say? They were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody. Well, because his time had come, he rides in on the colt. The people are shouting. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. And he allows them to do it. Why does he do that? Well, number one, the first reason, he was worthy of that because he's the king. That's what all this is about. Why are they saying this? Why does he allow them to do it? It's filling all these prophecies. You go back and look at the prophecies and all the context and all the context are about the king. He allowed them to do it, to say those things, and he didn't hush them at this point in time because he's the king. He's worthy of the praise, all the accolades, all the honor. He's the king. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. Amen. But secondly, he knew that such things would prompt the religious leaders to do what they had to do that would result in his death on Friday. Look at verse 16. Jesus responded to the religious leaders with this quote from Psalm 8, verse 1 and 2. 
O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Notice all of these texts that he's quoting from, the context is really important. So small group leaders, we'll talk about that on Tuesday. That's really, really important. He's pulling these texts. It's not just random text. No, these texts, they had a purpose. What are these texts he's, in the Old Testament he's quoting? The context is all about the king. The king is coming. The king is coming. He's quoting from these, pulling scriptures from these texts. They talk about the king. Why? Because he's the king. He quotes from Psalm 8 because in Psalm 8, God is praised. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Jesus saying, hey, I'm not going to hush them up any longer. Because what they're saying is true of me. Evidence number three. He rides in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He receives all the accolades. The third evidence is that he cleanses the temple. And there's a lot you could say about this, this event. They're, they set up a, a marketplace in the court of the Gentiles. The, the, the temple had different sections. In the court of the Gentiles, um, people were coming from all over the place to celebrate the Passover. And in order to do so, they had to have sometimes exchange money. Sometimes they had to buy animals to sacrifice because it's a Passover, right? And so they couldn't bring those in tow. Some of them had to make long journeys, so they would, they would buy those things there in the court of the Gentiles, but they would make it in, into a market, and sometimes they would charge exorbitant prices. And, and as you see Jesus coming into the temple, he's riding on a, a donkey. It's very lowly, right? Very humble. But Jesus is also passionate for God's glory, isn't he? And we see that coming out here. And he shows his authority, right? What does he do? He runs out all the money changers. It's interesting. He does this, and no one stops him. You ever thought about that? Like, why did the religious leaders kind of set this thing up? Why didn't they just step in there and say, no, 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 you can't do that. You need to stop. Because he's the king. And he's passionate for the Father's glory. And what does he do in verse 13? He quotes another scripture from Isaiah 56, verse 6 through 8. This, the context of Isaiah 56 is the coming kingdom of God. Let's, let's read this text, Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar for my house. Here's the, the part that he's quoting ver verbatim. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. It's not just for the Jews. Isn't that funny how they got it, they got it wrong? It wasn't just for the Jews. It was for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. But he takes this text and he quotes it and this text in Isaiah 56 is about the coming kingdom of God 
So he takes up God's cause because he's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's putting himself in a position of the coming king. Evidence number four that Jesus is the Messiah is the healing of the sick. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now this is interesting. Remember so many times he heals somebody, cast out a demon, and says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. He might say, hey, go yourself, show yourself to the, to the priest so he can declare you clean. But what, right here, he's doing it in front of everybody, Chase. Everybody. Everybody's in the temple. Everybody's in the temple. It's maximum capacity. So many people there, they're in the temple. And he's healing these lame people and blind. Hey, he's not, he's not clearing, John, he's not clearing up a sinus infection. I know Hunter wishes he was here and clear up his today. He's not, he's not clearing up somebody's sinuses here. It's just people who are blind, never seen before, they're seeing. People that are lame and they're walking. What's he doing? He's declaring himself to be no ordinary man. This is going to be helpful. Do you remember John the Baptist? He's in prison. He's, right, he's about to be beheaded. Matter of fact, turn there to Matthew 11. Just flip back. Hold your spot and turn, go, go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Page 969 in the Black Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 6. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent, words, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So what's John the Baptist doing there? You're like, well, he's the forerunner of Christ. Surely he knew who Christ was. I think he, he did, but then he's in prison. He's like, is this the way it's supposed to go? Right? Maybe he has some doubts there. So he sends his, his boys to Jesus and asks them this question. And Jesus answered him in this way. Go and tell John what you hear and see. Not only what you hear, what you see. Tell him what you hear me say and tell him what you hear, see me do. Give the, just give the report back to him. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John is wanting some affirmation that Jesus is the Christ. Wants it confirmed, sends his disciples to him. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? He actually is quoting Psalm, uh, Isaiah 35, verse 4 through 6. It's a messianic prophecy. Here's that, here's that prophecy. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So Jesus tells John's disciples, hey, 
just give a report back to what you see going on here. And he's healing all these, the lame and the blind and the deaf. And so he goes back and they report that back. But what's he also doing? He's quoting this messianic prophecy. Isaiah, 500 years before Christ, telling these words. Isaiah is telling Judah, the southern kingdom, what it's going to be like when the Messiah king comes. And then what's Jesus doing? He's doing the things that the Messiah is supposed to be doing. On that Palm Sunday, the Messiah king had come. Jesus gives evidence that he is the Messiah king that Israel had longed for all these years. He rides into Jerusalem on a foal of a donkey to fulfill prophecy of Zechariah 9. He receives the accolades from the crowds that they shout praises fitting for a king. He cleanses the temple with great authority, authority like the Messiah king would have. And he heals the blind and the lame, again, to feel, fulfill prophecy. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is the king. He's not a king, but he is the king of kings, the Messiah king. And he came to do what? He came to serve. He came to love. He came to die. Friday night, I hope you can be here at 7 o'clock. It'll be a short service, but it's going to be really sweet. We're going to focus on the death of Christ. On Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to focus on the resurrection of Christ. But today, we focus on his kingship. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of the nations. He doesn't just want the Jews to bow to him, but Jesus wants all to bow to him. He wants me to bow to him. He wants you to bow to him. So the question, by way of application, is Jesus your king? We, we sing this beautiful song, right? And it's a beautiful song. My king is known by love. These other kings, they're known by The iron fist, their tyranny, their conquering power, their brute strength. Well, what's our king known? What's he known for? He's known for his love for sinners like you and like me. If you've yet to embrace Jesus as king, I want to encourage you and challenge you, plead with you and beg with you today. Repent. If you could sum up Jesus, all of his teaching in the three words, it'd be repent and believe. If you've never turned from your life of sin, living for yourself, living for your own pleasures, living for temporal things, living for your own glory, repent means you, you turn away from those things and you begin to live for the Lord. Believe means that you trust that Jesus, when he lived, he lived for you. And he died, he died for you. And he rose on the third day, he rose for you. Trust that Jesus did those things on your behalf and for you and in your stead. The Bible tells us if we confess our sin, and confession and repentance go hand in hand, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteous. Lost person, do you not want to clear conscience for the first time in your life? Lost person, do you not want to have the weight of guilt and shame removed for the first time in your life? If you answered yes to any of those questions, repent and believe. And it may be something like this. You cry out to the Lord. It's the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. 
I've been wrong. I've done wrong. I deserve your wrath because of my sin, my rebellion against you. I've lived my life like this for you for all my days. But today, I want to turn from that. I want to live for you. I don't want to live for myself. And I give you my life. And I'm trusting that Jesus did die for me. And I know he, he lived for me. He died for me. And he rose for me so that I could be forgiven. Father, forgive me. Not because I deserve it, but because of what Jesus has done for me. I want to live for you today. I want to give you my life. I want Jesus to be my king. Save me, Lord. If that's your desire, that's your prayer, I would love to talk to you about that today. If you've never prayed that prayer and you're still holding out in rebellion against the Lord, I want to say Jesus came humbly riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. He was lowly, humble, and meek. We see some authority there at the temple, right? But we also see him being led to the, the cross and giving up his life. Revelation 19, if you want to read it, go read it. The next time Jesus comes, he's not going to be lowly riding on a humble donkey. He's going to come in judgment where he's going to judge sinners who've yet to repent.